Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Rider Magazine, and your host for the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Forrest Hobbs. If you've listened to episodes 46, 48, and 50, our three-part interview with Dave Scott about his trials and tribulations on the Transamerica Trail, then I think you'll enjoy this episode. Hobbs also completed a solo trip on the Transamerica Trail, but he took a very different approach than Dave Scott. Hobbs lives in Denver, Colorado, and he bought a 1,200cc Yamaha Super Tenere adventure bike, rode it 2,000 miles to Nags Head, North Carolina, rode the entire 6,200 miles of Sam Carrero's Transamerica Trail, added a couple thousand miles along the way to visit friends and family, and then rode from Port Ord, Oregon back home. Over 73 days, he logged over 12,000 miles. Hobbs also took a purist approach. He used only roll charts for navigation and didn't even have a GPS as a backup. He also camped on the trail nearly every night. I really enjoyed my conversation with Hobbs, and we have some commonalities. We're both from the South, we're both 49 years old, and we both started riding motorcycles late in life. But whereas I'm mostly a street rider who occasionally rides off-road, riding dirt bikes is Hobbs's passion. He has competed in the Baja 1000, the Red Bull Romaniacs Hard Enduro, and the Idaho City 100 ISDE qualifier. And not just once, he did all three races twice. His plan was to make the Transamerica Trail as challenging as possible to test himself, to break himself down mentally and physically, and he prevailed. Stay tuned for another episode about adventure and testing one's limits. Good morning, Forrest. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Greg. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is great. So uh, I'm in California. You're in uh, Denver, Colorado. Yes, um, sir. And uh, you had contacted me because you had listened to the uh, three rather long freewheeling episodes uh, with Dave <laughs> Scott about his experience on the Transamerica Trail. Yes, sir. Um, you've ridden the Transamerica Trail yourself, and you had a quite different uh, experience. You bring a different background to it, and I think it would be a kind of a nice counterpoint. You know, Dave had various challenges. Uh, if people want to listen to those, that's episodes like 46, 48, and 50. Um, Dave was dealing with challenges during the pandemic. He was uh, sort of had some limitations in terms of preparation. He was, like you, he rode solo, and that brings its own challenges. But um, I think you took a very different approach. And I'd first like to kind of start with, you know, Dave had some off-road riding experience, but it's pretty limited. He's kind of like me. He's more of a street rider. Uh, and I think most of his dirt riding experience had been when he was younger. But I'd like you to sort of set up how you prepared your, basically your riding experience prepared you for the Transamerica Trail. So give us a little bit of background. Sure, I'd be happy to. Once again, thanks for having me on the show. I uh, appreciate it. I started riding later in life. I always wanted to ride as a kid. I've always liked bicycle cycling. I used to be in a BMX when I was a kid and road cycling. I moved to Colorado to race mountain bikes in the mid-90s cross country. And, you know, I've always liked the outdoors and stuff like that. And finally, when I was about 30 years old, I got my first dirt bike, uh, YZ125 two-stroke motocross bike and started riding motocross in some trails. And uh, ever since then, it's been pretty full bore on the dirt bikes. It's just something I really love. And uh, so, you know, I've done some pretty hard races like the Baja 1000 twice and the Red Bull Romaniacs twice, Idaho City 100 qualifier for the ISDE and, you know, things of that nature. And uh, I was reading on a website, some comments or something a year or so ago, and I came across the Trans-American Trail, hadn't really known about it. And uh it really just piqued my interest. And 
I thought I could bring together a lot of my skills of just camping and the outdoors and riding and the love of nature and photography and things like that and kind of synthesize them or bring them all together with the tat. So I thought the tat would demand a lot of things from me. And, you know, I just want to see America. So the Transamerica Trail, I'd like a little bit of background. So I know that you followed uh, Sam Carrero's route. Uh, I know there's some variations and so forth. And this is a route that Sam Carrero developed, I think, mostly through the 80s. I don't know when it was fully mapped out. Uh, But you took a, you know, again, when we interviewed Dave Scott, he did it on a KTM 500 EXC and he did it uh, using, I think he had some maps, uh, roll charts, but he mostly used uh, GPS tracks and followed a GPS. But it sounds like you took much more of a purist approach and you went strictly with a roll chart. So for people that aren't familiar with what a roll chart is, how is a roll chart used for navigation on a route? Well, the roll chart started for the way that Enduro, and Enduro is an off-road race, like a trail trail riding race. And the old Enduro format used to be what's called a timekeeper. And in the timekeepers, they use these roll charts. And it was a way to basically stay on time on the course because they had certain parameters you have to meet. And then on this one, it's basically an adding piece of adding machine paper. And, you know, it's probably about eight feet long for 300 miles or so. And, you know, the whole Trans-American Trail that I did with the Atlantic Ocean Spur and the Pacific Ocean Spur is like 6,200 miles. So, you know, every 250, 300, you got to reload. But anyways, it's it's basically each direction is about an inch in height and you have a little clear view thing with rollers and you just keep rolling it past. And, you know, every inch is just another direction and every direction could be 0.1 miles up to 18 miles. And then it'll give you direction to the next intersection, whether it's a T or a Y or a, a cross and uh, so it's just like 1.2, T, left, 1.1, Y, right, 3.1. And then at every direction, you have to reset the odometer. So it's, you know, one mile reset, two mile reset, three mile reset, 0.1. Well, so um, so it's essentially a long scroll that has turn-by-turn directions. If anybody's ever, like, looked on a Google <laughs> Maps thing, if you printed out the turn-by-turn directions or something. So that's essentially what it is. And when you reset your odometer, do you have a... You have a separate odometer or are you just using the trip meter on your motorcycle typically? Trip meter on my motorcycle and on the super tenere that I use, you have to hit it four times. So it's like one, two, three, four <laughs> reset. Right, <laughs> you right. can't just hit it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So and I'm always moving too. So it's like you have to, as you're moving, you're reaching up with one hand and you know, making the turn so you can get an accurate reset right at the intersections where you need to make it. Right, right. Wow. So um I know that some, uh, you know, rally races, I mean, that's how they used to do the Dakar years ago. And I don't know, they still do roll charts with the Dakar. I mean, I know they have electronic, but they have it as a backup. And I think some rallies still require just roll charts, you know. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, primitive. (laughs) Right. So Forrest, you mentioned that uh, Sam Carrero's Transamerica Trail from essentially from the Atlantic to the Pacific is roughly 6,200 miles. But uh, from what you had told me before the interview, you rode a total of 12,000 miles, so almost, you know, about twice the length. So you're in Denver. Tell us how you got up to 12,000 miles on this trip. Uh, Well, most people, when they ride the TAT, they somehow they transport their bike to the beginning in Nags Head, North Carolina. So they might rent a U-Haul or something like that, put their bike on a truck and transport it one way, start the TAT. And a lot of times they'll ship their bike back from Port Orford, Oregon, and um, 
yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to do the transfer. And that's part of why I chose the Yamaha Super Tenere was to do all the extra road miles that I knew I was going to do. So I took it from Denver to Nags Head, North Carolina, and just roaded uh, on the interstate, basically, the 2,100 miles uh, fully loaded to Nags Head to start. And then from Port Orford, Oregon, it was, um, you know, another 1,500 miles or so back to Denver. And then a buddy of mine, Brent, his uh, son Bly was uh, in the Loretta Lynn's Amateur National Motocross Race, which was near the TAT. Uh, it, that race is near Nashville at Loretta Lynn's Ranch in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee. And so I did the 450 mile transfer from Teleco Plains. I peeled off the TAT and went to watch the the motocross races for the nationals for about five days. And then I went back to Teleco Plain. So that took a thousand miles or so. And then there's 3,500 or so for the transfers and maybe another thousand miles for mechanicals and detours and things like that. I also went to Atlanta and visited my family because um, the TAC goes through the Northwest part of Georgia as well. Right, right. So, uh, you know, 12,000 miles, uh, you know, uh, at least half or more of that was off-road. So uh, you mentioned some mechanical. So I'm just kind of curious about some details because, you know, uh, a lot of people have, you know, maybe have heard of the TAT and maybe they want to ride a section of it. Very few people probably have the time or, or inclination to do the whole thing like you have done. Um, but uh, questions that come to my mind are like tires. Like you rode 2,100 miles on the interstate to even start the TAT on the Atlantic coast. You know, did you start off with some some fairly knobby tires? Did you have yeah. to put a fresh set when you got there? How many tire changes have you done? And you mentioned some mechanicals. Could you walk us through some of those kind of technical details? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks for the question. I just had, I forgot the kind of tires I had going out there. Just whatever came with the bike. I bought the bike last April. This is my first ADV bike. I've never had one. I haven't really had any street bikes. It's all just been straight dirt motocross and trail bikes. And uh, so anyways, it came with a set of tires. And so I just burned those up for the 2,100 miles riding out to Nags Head, North Carolina. And then I had uh, set it up for a shop in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. I had some tires shipped there and just from doing a bunch of research on another website and the comments and everything, they said that specifically for the Super Tenere that the Shinko 804-805s work pretty well. And so I decided just to run those for the whole ride. So from Nags Head, I made it to Rocky Mount, North Carolina at Tri-County Power Sports. And those guys were really nice to me. And uh, they put the Shinkos on. And those tires were getting, I don't know, maybe 3,000 or so 4,000 miles for a rear and double that for a front. And uh, so then I, I had a rear tire shipped to my sister's house in Atlanta. And that was about 3,000 in, I think, after I got them in North Carolina, 2,500. That rear was pretty burned up. And so yeah. I got a rear installed there. And then in Moab, I got a front and a rear installed, same Shinkos. And they actually had them in stock. Nice. And then I got a rear in Idaho because actually on day one after Moab, I did a big day of like 320 miles and uh, I was going fast though. That's what I learned with this bike because I really can't ride how I want to ride. Yeah. You know, I, I can ride plenty fast, but it's hard on the wheels and it's hard on the tires is what I found. Right. 
Uh, well, you know, I'm talking like, you know, going over 70 miles an hour. Like 65, yeah. 70. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you hit, a, you hit a, you hit a rock in a, on a gravel road or something. Cause I've actually yeah. had that experience myself on, on actually on a super itinerary where I, I dinged rims yeah. pretty bad. Cause I was riding with some guys pretty fast and there was big embedded rocks and some trails mm-hmm. and you hit that at a good clip. It's just, you know, it's, and all that mass and momentum, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, something's got to give. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. And I was even also, I was running, I was running maximum pressure for the whole ride. So I never aired down for anything. I was running 38 in the front, 42 in the wow. rear. Yeah. <laughs> I was running rocks. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I have to say, you know, again, I, I understand that there's some sections of the, of the tat that are, uh, you know, just kind of wide open gravel roads, but then there's some stuff that's pretty technical. There's some stuff that can get pretty muddy. And, and, you know, you were, you said, you know, I, I agree with you, the, the super tenere full of gas with nothing on it, it's pushing 600 pounds, like I said, about 580. Right. And if you've got panniers and all your gear and you, you camp the whole way, you didn't stay in any motels or anything from what you said, is that correct? Yeah, I, I stayed in one motel in Alpine North at the Alpine Lodge in North Carolina just because it was really nice. And I got yeah. talking to the proprietor and whatever, and it just felt right. Yeah. And then I did three days in Delta, Utah, just because I was just done. Yeah. I just had to recuperate. And so I just hung. And that's after I got the tire puncture and my plug lasted 1,300 miles about. And then in, um, you know, in Delta, Utah and just all that, I was just tired sure, and beat sure. the heat and everything. And, uh, but besides that, uh, when I was actually on the trail, I camped every other night. So it was, uh, <laughs> so you're pushing, so you said that you're pushing probably 700 pounds for a bike. And that is, I mean, I remember, you know, the interview with Dave, he was saying he had a, like I said, he had about a 300 pound, 500 EXC, you know, and that nobody ever wished they had a, a heavier bike Bigger, on, on right. the chat. <laughs> so, so what was, and you're used to riding smaller bikes. I mean, you know, all the yeah. off-road riding yeah. that you do. So, yeah. um, and you bought this bike specifically for this trip. So I imagine you had right. a lot of adaptation to do to get used to such a big. Oh my God. Bike. Oh my God. It was, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good rider off-road and at motocross. And uh, I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm a good rider. I'm, I'm strong. I'm fit. I got this. No big deal. It's just dirt roads. And, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All I can say is I I've ridden a lot and, you know, dirt bikes and plenty of long days. And, uh, but just having that much material under you, 680 pounds or yeah. whatever, it's just, it's a lot of bike. I mean, I'm six foot 200 yeah, and it's still a lot of bike and it really, it's way different, I think, than riding something that's like 500 pounds or whatever. It's just, even if you're riding it correct, it just takes more because it's right. so much bike. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's interesting is that, you know, adventure bike sales have have done, you know, they've been like the real bright spot in the motorcycle industry over correct. the past decade. Yeah, uh, yeah. If anybody pays attention to the industry, you know, everybody's got a full range of adventure bikes with all kinds yeah. of uh, technology and they've got middleweights and they got open class bikes and you can get 1300 cc's or 800 cc's or 650s. And so there's a zillion of them out there is that, but they're big motorcycles relative to a, a, a you know, a, a KTM dual sport or a, a dirt, like you said, a motocross bike. I mean, those things can be weigh, you know, 250 pounds, you know, a little bit more or less, but riding a big motorcycle is physically demanding. It's tiring, oh you know? Oh my God. I, I underestimated it completely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I'm like, oh I mean, yeah, I'm an expert. I got this. No big deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's something I think for people to think. I mean, I there are certainly people who buy adventure bikes and and do what you did and and enjoy it. And go, some people go around the world, but a lot of people buy them. I think they're they are aspirational vehicles as much as anything else. It's kind of like yes. buying a Jeep Rubicon that you may mm-hmm. or may not take off road. You know, is it? But they're comfortable bikes actually just for street riding, which is what I really yes. enjoy them. I but what off road riding I do, I own a KTM 690 Enduro. Yeah, own it because. It's lighter than most adventure bikes, and I'd rather have a lighter bike that may be a little bit less comfortable on the road because I'm not putting a lot of paved miles on those trips. But, uh, you know, yeah, I trailered it out to Moab, for example, to do white rim trails and other stuff. But big adventure bikes, they're they're not just physically demanding, but uh, I don't know if you had any incidents, but that much mass and momentum, something starts to go a little bit out of shape. It goes quick and it's hard to recover. I can't tell you. I mean, this bike, like I'm good at riding in the sand and the silt and the mud. Yeah. This bike was just terrible in those conditions. It just, once even going 20 miles an hour, you have to get down like 15 miles an hour to ride that stuff. Just because the front end starts when the front end starts wallowing the back end, all the weight in the back, all my gear and stuff. It just, the back overwhelms the front and starts pushing the front end and augering it. And then it just, it's just sketchy so it uh i couldn't ride like normal i couldn't ride aggressive and another thing with this bike i think the super tenere mine's a 2012 it had like 14,500 miles and i got it i put a thousand road miles on it and then bam i went and did the tat and uh it makes a fair amount i know bikes now make up to 150 horse or whatever but Still, 95 is a lot, and guys say it's nothing or whatever, but I tell you, it's something. And the motor on this bike can easily, easily out overwhelm the braking capacity of the bike. And so that's what you got to, you know, you get have fun and start pinning it. And then all of a sudden, you got no brakes, and then the ABS starts being choppy on the gravel surfaces and stuff. So it constantly have to be vigilant, use a lot of judgment because it's just so easy to get in trouble on a bike like this. Yeah. That's all I can say. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I just I just went. I, so uh, over the weekend prior to this interview, I was in Portugal for the KTM 890 adventure. Oh, nice. Uh, so, yeah, it was. You know, so that's the, it's interesting because that's the, the, the launch was for their base model and they have the R model, which is their more off road oriented model. Sure. Really, sure. the only difference is like the tires, the, the front fork. Uh, you know, the seat, a few other things. I mean, the Uh, same basic platform and they made the standard model a little bit more off-road oriented. It's got a little bit more off-road oriented tires. It's got a little bit softer suspension settings. And KTM being KTM, it was not a bunny slope ride. We were like on-road, off-road, back and forth using every every ride mode. But it is, again, because I don't ride off-road that often, it's like I'm always having to sort of adapt. Like, okay, I'm to these different conditions. And I, I was co- tried to be constantly vigilant because even though they have electronics, I think for some people they could, you know, and again, off-road ABS. So it has less intervention in the front. It turns it off at the rear and so forth, but they, in off-road modes that can, you know, reduce the, either the power or adjust the throttle response, all those things are great, but you still can't overcome the physics, I guess, you know, is no, what you that, were that's exactly what I'm, the rear end overwhelms the front end. That's the best yeah. way I can say it. Yeah, exactly. So it, it pushes really in and augers it down and makes the front dig and then you're done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, from may I say a couple other things. Please? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sure. One thing is I should have changed the fluids in this bike because they're probably the original suspension fluids and I should have resprung it heavier for me. So she was right. pretty soft the whole time, which yeah. 
And another thing I'll say is the Super Tenere, it's a really interesting bike in terms of when you're sitting down on gravel, it's a totally different machine than when you're standing. And I found that when I was standing, the bike was completely different on gravel. And so basically all the gravel, I mean, I basically stood all the time, you know, four, five, six hours every day of, you know, I usually ride like six, seven hours a day, maybe eight or nine, but I just had to stand, stand, stand because the bike is kind of sketchy sitting. Yeah. And it really took its toll. I ran bigger foot pegs. That was one of the best things I did. I ran the IMS rally pegs. Okay. Oh my yeah. God. That was probably the best modification I made. And I'm so glad I did it because they're really big pegs and I wanted that for a big bike. I mean, I think for what some people, you know, again, you know, most ADV bikes are typically set up when you buy them more for like, they're more street biased, you know, not right. all of them. Again, Especially the Super Tenere. Yeah, exactly. With Super Tenere, it's, a, it's not a dirt bike based bike. It's a street based. Exactly. I mean, they're going to have 90, 10 tires. And that ratio is typically it meant for somebody who's going to ride 90% street, 10% off-road. So the, the tires are typically best for like kind of some gravel and some hard packed dirt, but not good for sand, not good for mud. And with the pegs you're talking about, traditional sort of street pegs are fairly narrow. I mean, in the sense of they don't give you a big platform to stand on. So if you're standing up all day, depending on your boots, it can just be, it can really kind of make your feet more sore than they would be otherwise. And so, uh, yeah. Burning calves. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, like I said, if you were standing up four or five hours a day, that's, uh, you were obviously in shape beforehand, but I'm sure you got quite a bit of a workout on this. I on dropped, this. uh, I dropped 20 pounds. I was wow. a little bit I was a little bit pudgy going into it at 214 and <laughs> I dropped down. <laughs> I dropped down to 194 at the end. Wow. I'm at, I'm at 200 steady two months after. So I've yeah. kind of dropped 14. It's just sort of stayed. So it did something to me. <laughs> right. Wow. So, so, Hey, uh, you know, I'm curious about uh, some of the conditions that I heard from, from Dave, uh, you know, he, what, one of the biggest challenges he had was when he was in uh, the Southeast, particularly Mississippi. Mississippi was, was he encountered a lot some water crossings and mud and so forth. What were the conditions like in some of the parts of the trail for you? Um, I experienced a good bit of rain in, uh, like North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee. Um, I got lucky in Mississippi, you know, it's funny in Mississippi, I was riding through it and it was all, a lot of, it's just that red clay yeah. and uh, it's different than Georgia where I'm from, but, uh, I, I, there's so many parts I was riding through and I was just like, Oh my God, if this is wet, there's no <laughs> way I could make it through on this machine. I'll just have to post up in some town for a week or whatever and wait for it to dry up. <laughs> and then yeah. Go back about my business. And yeah. I mean, there's, there's there's a photo in the in the magazine in the November issue of Rider that from Dave's uh, print story about he's just got basically that that clay and mud is just caked on his knobbies oh, and he yeah. just and it was he said it was on his boots and he just he almost couldn't get himself out of it because he like he was by himself he like didn't have to, yeah, yeah exactly you know really Greg the uh, the number one the number one challenge of this ride was heat okay. I started on July 18th and that was like, oh yeah, the official heat wave back East and doing the transfer out to Nagshead, North Carolina. I, I got, so I never had it before and I'm pretty good in the heat. I'm from Atlanta and yeah. uh, I like the heat and I got what's called heat rash and, and just all over my body. It kind of looked like poison ivy and it itched like poison ivy. And it actually came back in Oklahoma as well. Uh, Cause it was just, Oklahoma was like an oven. Really? I mean, yeah. it was just gnarly, 100 degrees, 101, 102, windy sun, just 
baking. Yeah, and humid. Yeah. So it's interesting you talk about the heat rash. I've seen that. My wife and I do some hiking, and yeah, depending on what you're, what kind of clothes you're wearing and stuff like that. So, so that, given how hot it was, what sort of gear were you wearing in terms of apparel? Oh yeah, thank you. I well, so yeah, with the pegs and the standing, I wore motocross boots for the whole trip. You know, Garnet, Mm -hmm. Garnet SG12s. Yeah, which is I've worn those for like ten years. It's just all I wear. And I had on climb, uh, what is it, climb to car pants mm-hmm. uh, over the boot. And then I just had a few old jerseys that are sentimental to me, and I wore those. And I wore chest gear for the half, t- half the time. It was just so hot, I quit wearing my, my Thor chest gear. And yeah. I actually was wearing a motocross helmet, a Fly Formula carbon helmet. And kind of wish I'd had an ADV helmet with a visor, but... And I'd wear goggles and sunglasses, just depending on the conditions, et cetera. Right. right. So, so why is it that you wish that you sometimes had an ADV helmet with a, you know, like I said, a face shield? It's or all something? the wind noise, especially on the yeah. transfers and stuff. Just the, and I actually took the visor off of my motocross helmet, was running at visorless about, you know, after Loretta Lenz, a guy gave me a tip on that. And it was a good tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always got to listen. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, goggles are great to keep out dust and, and dirt like that off road. Yeah. But yeah, you know, you, you're going 80 miles an hour down a freeway. It's uh, it's just a noise. It's annoying. Yeah. You know, so, it's a learning process, whatever. So, uh, you know, as you go along the, the tat, I mean, like I said, you were for navigation, you were using a roll chart and then uh, you camped most of this trip. So would you just basically ride until you were kind of done? And then did you... Do you camp in camp sites or campgrounds, or sometimes it was just right I, I, uh, I guess I'm taking pride again. I had <laughs> not one campsite. No, all, really? It was all bootleg, just, you know, bandit camping. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stubborn like that. No, so. no, that's good. I mean, were there, were there some particularly cool places that you camped in terms of scenery or, or conditions or something like that? Uh, yeah, there are definitely some cool places. Um, you know, in Oregon, there's one right by the road and there's a beaver pond and stuff like that. And, you know, even some spots out in the middle of the desert, it's, you know, the desert can be nice. And in the woods of Oregon were some nice spots and I mean, nothing super exceptional. It's just because yeah. a typical day for me, I didn't like start super early. I'm not Mr. Morning person, but you know, I try to, I get up at seven thirty or eight and I'd always try to be on the bike by like 10 or something, but every day I'd pretty much ride till dark. Yeah. And so I just ride and then I'd get lunch at like between 11 and two, just depending on where the next town was, because let's remember on the tat, there's typically only maybe two stops in a whole day where you can get gas and the rest okay. of it, you're just out in the weeds wherever and you know rural america where there's just nothing yeah and uh so you know i get gas and you know get something to eat in the middle of the day and take i didn't really carry much food with me in general and then you know around four or five six whatever i'd you know hunt down dinner and get some more gas and fill up my dromedary bag with six liters of water and probably punch out another hour or two after dinner most nights and i'd always just try to you know, about hour before dark, I just start looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you said that you started in uh, mid-July. How long was your trip in terms of, uh, you know, from beginning to end, from leaving your house to getting back home and being done? Uh, I left July 18th, and I think I, I got back on September 28th. So that's 73 days. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
I probably had 53 or so actual tat trail days and the okay. other 20 days were I stayed with a friend in Bend, Oregon, another friend uh, like in Logan, Utah. So that was probably five days. I went to Atlanta for five days, Loretta Lens for five or six days, some mechanicals. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's probably 20 days off the trail, just doing other stuff. Right, right. Well, hey, like you said, you you said at the beginning you wanted to see America. And so it's an opportunity to to visit, you know, friends or family that might be nearby or see some historic sites. I know that, you know, when Dave did it, he he did this thing where he wanted to to do things like, you know, the Oregon Trail and the Santa Fe Trail and do some of these historical things and see some historical places along the way. Cause uh he's like, Well, I'm only gonna do this once, you know, that was his thing. So yeah, right, right. Yeah, but so that's another, that's another thing I'll say, Greg, is uh, it's pretty interesting using the roll charts because with the roll charts, you're really married to the route because I didn't even have a GPS unit with me. I don't own one, really. So <laughs> <laughs> I have my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, if you had to. But, you know, interesting about that is, I mean, if you're out of and There's I imagine no service in lots of places. Yeah. When you're in, especially in the Western states, when you're, you know, I just I'm, I'm in that situation where. I, I, if I don't usually carry a GPS, I usually at least have like a, I have a Garmin inReach, which has a GPS and has right. a little map function, but it's just, it's got the oh shit button, you know, where you can, uh, if you get yourself in, in trouble somewhere and you, you know, yeah, I didn't have none of that. So. Wow. Okay. All right. On purpose. On purpose. Well, and um, you were very much a purist. So you were, right. you were solo and, and uh, right. no GPS, uh, no uh, emergency satellite. I had a low, I have one of those locator beacons if I got in trouble. Yeah. Uh, the ACR, I think it is. Okay. So if I really got hurt out in the middle of nowhere, I could press the button and right. that was it. But so, um, so one interesting thing about, uh, so the Super Tenere, you've got tubeless tires on there, right? Yes, yes sir. And a shaft drive. And that, actually, I wanted the shaft drive because then there's no chain brakes, no chain maintenance, no chain changes. Right, right. But even with, you said that you mentioned one puncture, which you can plug a tubeless tire. Uh, I mean, you got a tube, you've got to pull the tire off. It's a much more involved process. But uh, did you, did you just have that one puncture? Did you have other flats? Uh, No, I had the one puncture and that's it. And it was, you know, interestingly, it was on the first day I got brand new tires. And those Chico 804, 805s I'm running, I think they're 50-50 tires. Yeah, yeah. They get pretty good on the road, though. They're pretty quiet and stuff. And uh, I broke a spoke in Arkansas and then I had to do a detour. And I think it was like Fort Wayne, Arkansas, the Yamaha shop there. They were super cool and he hunted me down some spokes because you know usually spokes are sold in full sets of 32 or 36 and and there's actually four different links of spokes two links on the right side two links on the left side so just getting the spokes not as easy as it sounds always <laughs> right right yeah exactly. it's not as <laughs> they hooked me up and gave me a spoke and found me two spares and i carried those and i never broke another you know once you have spares you're not going to break anymore <laughs> Exactly. But you can't bring spares of everything. So you mentioned some other mechanicals. I mean, obviously you had a broken spoke. Uh, what were some? Other- I had a broken spoke and a puncture. And I think that was it. Oh, <laughs> hey, I, I mean, like you say, I mean, for a big, heavy motorcycle that I'm sure you rode a lot harder than most other people would. And you did correct. You know, 1200 miles round trip. I mean, it's it, at least it sounded like it was a durable motorcycle. I mean, that's a good thing. Well, it's Yamaha. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. That's great. I mean, that's again, that's a thing that's you know, uh, you know, the that's a real world test that 
you know, we, I work for a magazine, we test motorcycles, you know, we do our best to put at least a thousand miles on a bike or something, but we just, sure. can't, uh, you know, uh, we occasionally will have long-term bikes that we put closer to, you know, five or 10,000 miles on over the course of a year, but you did this over a course of a couple of months. And so, yeah, so you, you, you had weight to deal with, but it's interesting. You, you make a, you make a good point about the shaft drive. I know that is a thing that, um, you know, a BMW GS has got a shaft drive. Uh, the Super Tenere has a shaft drive. Some of the big uh, Triumph Tigers have shaft drives and uh, it uh, adds weight, but it does reduce the maintenance factor for, uh, you know, some off-road conditions. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I changed my shaft oil when I changed my engine oil. I'll probably, I did like three oil changes, like every three or 4,000 miles, I change the engine oil. Every other, I do a filter. Um yeah. And, it, but if anything, I was really trying hard to protect my tires and my wheels the whole yeah. trip. And another thing about Super Tenere is, you know, I'm riding a 2012. It's kind of an old bike, even though the one I'm, I have, it was, it was in basically new and mint condition when I bought it. So I basically had like a mint Super Tenere that was just old. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, anyways. Well, I'm curious, you know, um, Again, you got at least 6,200 miles of the TAT itself proper. So what were some of your favorite parts of the TAT in terms of riding or scenery or stuff like that? Really is, maybe I'm just biased and going back to my homes, but Georgia and Colorado were my favorite yeah. two states. Georgia was really not even part of it. It was only 120 or so miles, but I really like West Virginia and Virginia too. And, you know, that whole Blue Ridge Appalachian Belt is just so beautiful. And yeah. the mountains are really big there. And, you know, people think that I'm from, I live in Colorado. I've lived here 28 years. And you know, I mean, the mountains here are big, but there's plenty of big mountains in Virginia and Western, Western Virginia is just rugged. Yeah. I can't, I mean, it's, and then Colorado, I really took my time through Colorado. I slowed down and probably took a couple extra days in Colorado and it was just beautiful. And going through the, you know, the Alpine loop section and cinnamon pass and California pass. And it was spectacular. I've been through plenty of Colorado, but it was, it was just special and coming through, you know, while on the tat and having been through North Carolina, Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma, et cetera, it was, it was different. Yeah. Well, you know, again, if anybody who's uh, who has uh, listened to the previous episodes or read Dave Scott's story, uh, he had uh, an incident on Imaging Pass uh, in yeah, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> he broke his tip fib and had yeah, exactly. So he had life, he, life he, out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had an oh he had an oh shit moment that was you know that uh, actually went bad and he he broke his leg and he had to be transported off the trail. Um, did you have any like really sketchy? Yeah, I had one. Yeah, I had one big one. Well, I had a couple. I had a few sketchy moments riding where my front front tire would slip and I almost dropped it where it would have been real bad. Yeah. You know, whatever got lucky, quote unquote. But uh, <laughs> the biggest moment I had, you know, it's just, oh, my God, I about killed myself. It was, well, mentally like flogging myself because it was just not the smartest. And it's probably like day five. It was in the morning. I just gotten going and you know, really just getting going on the tat, pretty excited about it, got my mind on and just going down some straight forest service road on the left side and hit something. And then all of a sudden I'm over in the gutter Ooh. and the gutter is like, you know, 12, 14 inches deep, just like a, a drainage channel over on the left side of the road. And then I dropped her in there and I was like, oh God. And then it like squiggle, squiggle. And I posted my right foot and I really, and immediately I felt that stab of pain 
was like, oh God, I just did my meniscus or my ACL or something. And yeah. yeah. Oh, I was about to kill my, just like, like if this just ended at all, something stupid, like yeah. I'm going to have a conniption. And yeah. Then, I mean, especially that early on. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. You know, get my flow on and everything. And, right. and, but luckily nothing happened. And I said to my, and then I actually really looked at my suspension and I realized the forks have a spring preload and the shock has a spring preload. And since I'm kind of undersprung and everything, and then my fluids are probably junky. Yeah. You know, I, I cranked down all the preloads. I cranked down the damping and the bike was dramatically better. Yeah. So I made the adjustments to the machine and, and I made the adjustments in my mind of just like, you really got to, you know, ride way within your limits. Cause just, you know, one day, one little mistake, it's done. You're done. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like you said, you're out there by yourself. So, I mean, like even that little one moment of, I glory, got scared. Well, that, but I mean, yeah, like you, like you want to finish, you want to get through. And so hot dogging a little bit too much or something like that. Mm -hmm. and it's not like you're going to be able to do much on a 700 pound bike. That's going to be anywhere near what it's like on a motocross bike. So it's not like you're going to be able to rip a big wheelie or something and, and be like, and still. <laughs> so, exactly. so, so ride enough to like, keep it exciting and engaged. But uh, you know, sounds like, especially if you had an incident early on, you learned that you always got to leave a little bit of mar a, a margin of error such that, you know, if something pops out, it comes around a corner, somebody who's, also on the trail and in a pickup truck taking their half right out of the middle exactly. of the road you got to be ready for it otherwise it could uh it could i've had i had plenty of blind corner moments and that's just it you know you want to be on the you know inside or whatever you know the corner is but be on the you know furthest away side and yeah yeah i know that and like maybe i was riding 80 percent, and i knocked her down to you know probably 70 percent after posting my foot there in west virginia so yeah. I mean, I know the folks that run the backcountry discovery routes organization, sure. they have a campaign and they have stickers and stuff about ride, right? I mean, if you've got a, a two-way trail or or route or something, sometimes these are Jeep roads or, or forest roads or whatever it may be, is stay as far to the right because you never know who you're sharing the, the road with and they may not do the same. Exactly. So there are a lot of people err towards the middle of a, of a, you know, they want options right or left. But um, yeah, if you're coming around at a, at a even at a moderate speed uh, off road, and you come around a, a blind corner, uh, man, you've got to get stopped in a hurry. So, and I got one for you. Even on the paved road, I was on like a state highway. You, you know, as you hit those to connect the dirt roads, and I was coming up and over a right hander, just on a typical you know double line paved road, and. It was one of those insect sprayers, you know, the one with like the 10 foot tall wheels and but they're wider than normal because they got to like the crops go underneath them and they spray. And so he was about two feet over the line. Yeah, because he's so wide and it's a farm piece of farm equipment. And so I'm just kind of cruising up and over and around this right hander and boom, there he is. But, you know, luckily I was going kind of fast, but not crazy. And I was like, oh, my God, if I'd really been pushing, I could have just nailed him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was in my lane and it gets his fault. But guess what? If I hit him, who pays? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right away. Doesn't matter if you if you end up in the dirt, <laughs> you on the ground. Nail so, something yeah. bigger than you, you're done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, sounds like, like you said the Appalachians, which uh, I've never done any off-road riding there to speak of. I know uh, riding on the roads there, some of the mountain roads, it's just beautiful. So oh, yeah, especially like Blue Ridge Parkway. And yeah. So the Appalachians uh, through the, 
Virginia's and Carolina's and North Georgia. Uh, you mentioned the heat in some places, particularly in Oklahoma. Are there any sections of the tat that you were just like, hey, I just got to get through this. I'm not really enjoying it for whatever reason. Uh, oh, yeah, there's plenty <laughs> of that. <laughs> like Mississippi, uh, even parts, parts of Tennessee, parts of North Carolina to start. It was just so hot. I mean, I remember meeting these guys in Colorado and they were like in their 30s. You know, I'm 49. Yeah. And uh, and they were on like one of them's on like a, a Husaberg 570, that old 570. Another one had a 690 KTM. And they were like hoteling and a little camping, I think. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people are, and uh, which is fine. And we, I was like, yeah, I'm camping the whole way, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, my God, we were in the south. And there's some of those nights. There's just it's too hot. There's yeah. no way we were camping. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guess who was camping? <laughs> so, so, I mean, uh, Greg, I, I'd get done. I'd get done. It'd be 7 o'clock, 7.30. It gets dark a half hour later. And I get off the bike and just be in my jersey and my climb to cars and my SG12s and just so hot, just dripping sweat, just yeah. soaked and just like, oh my God, I wish I could just escape. I wish I could get out of my body right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in those, when those really hot nights, did you just camp out in the open? I mean, not even pitch a tent? Or, or... No, you have to pitch a tent because of the bugs. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. I... <laughs> well, what I did, I... One, of the, one of the better pieces of gear that I brought was a sleeping bag liner made out of Cool Max. I think uh -huh. it weighs 12 ounces. And uh, so really for the first month of the trip, I didn't even use, I have a Western Mountaineering Versalite. 10 degree bag it's like two pounds it's a really nice sleeping bag and uh i didn't even use the sleeping bag for the first month i just yeah. slept in that sleeping bag liner and that's it that's smart that's smart yeah yeah I bet. and then i have a big agnes air mattress six six it's like a pound and a little pillow a yeah. seat of summit pillow and i just not use the tarp on the tent if i knew it wasn't gonna rain i just right. sleep in my you know it'd be basically a big mosquito net <laughs> so what did you what did you do to you know obviously you're hot and sweaty and you're you're camping i mean did you find ponds or streams to no, every night before when i get my dinner and my gas for the next day i'd fill up my msr i got a six liter dromedary bag so i'd put my six liters of water i fill up my set i was running a 70 ounce just camelback classic nothing yeah. special and I'd fill up my 70 ounce camelback with ice water. I'd yeah. like fill up with ice and then water and then the dromedary bag, I get six liters. So I'd park the bike, I'd stop, you know, basically rip off my clothes and put my flip flops on and hang the bag up and just use like a gallon of water to rinse off. And then I'd run some camelback water on my head just to cool down. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, dude, I'd just be burning up for like an hour or 40 minutes just yeah i mean well that makes sense to do a camp shower but i know i mean i'm oh, i did i'm from the south but i've lived in california since 06 and i guess i sort of i've, I've gotten a weaker constitution <laughs> so correct but i remember yeah, that I can relate <laughs> yeah when, it, when, it's, when it's hot when it's hot and humid at night like sometimes it just doesn't really cool down that much and it just stays no hot. it doesn't i mean there's another thing i found it was 11 p.m 11 p.m it would finally kind of break like yeah. consistently it's just interesting yeah like every time it kind of break i'd be like oh yeah it's getting a little cooler i look at my watch and there it is <laughs> right right so once you got out into uh the rockies and stuff did it did it cool off quite a bit or did you have any cold oh yeah way even like uh western oklahoma yeah you know That's western good. 
And you can even see the changes and even Western Arkansas, you start seeing some of the grasses and just some of the vegetation that's right. different from the right. South. That's kind of interesting seeing the change. So uh, speaking of Arkansas, you, the photo you sent me is uh, was taken by what's his name, Percy Kale? Is that his name? Or yeah, yeah, and they had that outpost there, and those guys have been there. Like I think he inherited it from his dad or something. And it's like they sell knickknacks and antiques, and I think that shop's been in the family for who knows. 60 so, so it's kind of it's kind of a, a, a Trans American Trail outpost, right? I mean, it's like yeah, he's, sure. he's kind it's of caters like, uh, to people that ride. Is he the one who records bikes and people in a like a logbook? Yeah, he has a logbook. I signed the logbook and he has photos. You go in the shop, it's this old 100, 100 plus year old building. And, uh, you know, there's photos all around. And he was such a nice guy. He was just lovely. That's awesome. That's awesome. You Well, with meeting him, you mentioned you met a couple other guys. I mean, did you come in contact with many other TAT riders? I mean, most people go east to west is that correct i mean yeah I don't you know. almost have to that's what it says on the website sam says that you yeah. basically have to go east to west and not saying that people haven't ever done it west to east i'm sure they have but typically correct and i mean uh, i mean other than the roll chart is arranged that way is there another reason why you think it would not really work as well i mean like it's sort of like people that hike the appalachian Trail. all the terms would be backwards even with the gps i think so i see i would say so it's more about an orientation of navigation than the actual conditions would be worse correct than, you know i think so yeah I okay so. i got you yeah one thing one thing i'll say to you greg is i met uh three different those guys from colorado another guy but here's a story so the guys from Colorado on the 570 and 690 adventure, they're like in their 35 or so. And, and one of them's like, yeah, I'm from Ohio. And we used to do timekeeper enduros and all the old guys always want to do the timekeepers and none of the kids want to do them because they're complicated, which they are. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of nerdy, but yeah. the old guys like it because they got an advantage because they know the nerd factor. And so they can capitalize on it. And uh, basically he said, so the old guys decided to do the tat. And these are the timekeeper enduro hardcore old guys. And he said that they did roll chart with the tat for like a week. And then they were like, screw this. This is too hard. We're not doing it. <laughs> well, I mean, yes. I mean, that is the old form of enduro uh, navigation, as you're saying. So it's kind of a. So these, and these guys were used to it and they yeah, weren't yeah, having it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Sorry. hey, man, I mean, it sounds like a, one heck of an adventure. I mean, you know, and you did it in a particularly, like I said, a purist format. I mean, you were solo. You did it without a GPS. I mean, you didn't even bring a GPS. It wasn't like, oh, I'll have it in my tank bag. And I'll yeah, no, there's no backup. But, you know, Greg, there's I did everything for a reason. I'm a pretty methodical person. And and what I learned on the trip is that to, to have, in my opinion, like real adventure and real fear if you really take away the tools and the backups and you really know you don't have a backup, I think it demands more focus. I think it demands sure. more presence because you know that your shit's on the line, you know, your ass is on the line. And, and when you really know, know that the, the, there's kind of not a, a blow off valve. It, it forces me to be tighter with everything. Well, but then and it also it's more pressure every day. It's more focus, more con which I think, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it forces you to be more resourceful, you know, and when you are in challenging situations, whether it's the conditions of the trail, it's the weather, it's your energy level uh, or fatigue that you're dealing with. I mean, you had said that you took a few days off the trail just to sort of recover because you're like, hey, I've been pushing pretty hard. I need to do this because if you're super fatigued, I was just dead. you're going to make mistakes. Out. You're going to make mistakes. So 
So it's also having that sense of judgment about what's the appropriate, like appropriate speed or appropriate pace or something. And I mean, I, I'm one of those people that I, I genuinely think as humans, we need something to push against. Like, it's almost like weightlifting. They call it resistance training because it's, it is pushing against a challenging force is that it's as humans, we need that. And I mean, we are in this day and age, we are very coddled and we have a lot of comforts and convenience, which are great on some levels. But when you become overly reliant upon those comforts and conveniences, when you get out of them, then all of a sudden you're kind of lost. But it sounds like for you, you really wanted that. I mean, writing the tat in any way, shape or form and completing it is a challenge, clearly. But it's a very real challenge. You wanted to take the challenge and kick it up to a higher level. You had highest, a, highest level. Exactly. Exactly. So, hey, I, I respect that. It's I mean, you know, I, you clearly had some some challenges, some oh shit moments, but you prevailed. You persevered. So that's I, I, how how did you feel once you completed the whole thing? Did you get out of it what you hoped to get out of it? Mm, yes and no. It was slightly anticlimactic, but <laughs> yeah. you know, I expected that. So that met expectations, quite frankly. Um, you know, it was just uh, probably a third of the way through, half the way through, two thirds of the way through. I was just questioning it. I mean, I remember I punched into Colorado and I was like, oh my God, I'm, you know, whatever. And then I'm like, shit, I got like 3,000 more miles. I'm yeah. like, it's like so far. I feel like I just ridden my ass off. And yeah. I still got what left? Yeah. It was just overwhelming. I mean, on so many days, the hardest thing was just getting up every day and getting on the bike and just do it again, do it yeah. again, do it again. And the bike's so heavy and big and it's hot and a bike, you know, that 1200 makes a lot of heat too. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It kicks it off into you, into me, the rider. And it just, when I got done, I was just like, man, <laughs> I can't believe I fucking did it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I, you know, interesting, I, I've not talked to many, I've only talked to you and Dave, people that have completed the, the Trans-America Trail, but I've read a number of books about people that have hiked the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail, and they, most of them mention a similar sort of thing. At some point, you've got to confront the drudgery of it. it, it it's almost like a monotony, like, like in the case of hiking, you've just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and you've got to make your miles. You're doing the same thing on a motorcycle. You're like, Hey, I got to get up. I may be tired. I'm like, kind of like to take a break from this, but if I'm going to finish, I got to keep going. I got to keep pushing through it. And it sometimes adventure, sometimes a trip like this, it, it's not always fun. And maybe a lot of it's not fun, actually. You know, people would always ask me, you having fun? Like, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I didn't do it for fun. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, that's part of the challenge. If it, if it were all fun or if it were all doable it wouldn't be a challenge that's the whole point you know but but fun or not i will say that i love riding and anytime being on my bike and being on the machine and feeling it and feeling the motor and god i love riding well hey man and uh, you had the opportunity to take 73 days and devote to uh an adventure like this uh you know that's not something that a lot of people are able to do they're like i'm I'm so grateful I'm so grateful to have the opportunity and, you know, a lot of days I'm, I'm, you know, whining to myself about it, but at the end of the day, 
I'm just fortunate to have the opportunity to do it. And a lot of people can't. And yeah, it was all the more reason I had to stick to it and never quit and see it through just because it is an opportunity. And, you know, you got to capitalize on those. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's like I, that's like that quote. I think it's from the Shawshank Redemption or something. Maybe some other things where it's like, you know, either you get busy living or get busy dying. And that is the yep. thing about an, a you know, we, you can always go to work an extra day, you can always do that, but you know, you'll sort of forget those days, but what you won't forget, what will really sort of define you as an individual is, is the challenges that you've uh, taken on and that you've met. And so, yeah, hey, the utmost respect, man. I appreciate you sharing your story with us. I just have kind of like one final question, like, you know, if anybody's contemplating or thinking about doing the tap, do you have like a couple little takeaway suggestions that you might recommend in terms of preparation or things that you would avoid or something? I mean, it sounds like, you know, you had a, a particular way you wanted to do this trip, but is there anything like kind of general tips? Don't take a 1200. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, like I said, I've never heard anybody say that they wish they had a bigger bike on, on a, on a trip like this. So, yeah. You know, but seriously, like, you know, probably take a seven or 800 or a 650 yeah. type bike and you need less than you think. I sent home three different shipments, probably a lot of the times it was maps and roll charts too, but uh, you know, I probably sent home eight pounds, you know, four pounds, eight pounds and 10 pounds because at the post office, they weigh it and the weights on the box. And yeah. so I probably sent home like 20 pounds of stuff total. Yeah. And I didn't, it wasn't like a bunch of junk necessarily, but it just, Oh, maybe I'll use this or, Oh yeah, I'll have extra time. And there was no extra time. Yeah. Yeah. And all the, you know, the pleasure book I brought that went the, the first shipment home, that thing. Went. <laughs> like there ain't no reading. I'm going to be illiterate for 73 days. And <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, you know, it's funny because Dave said this take is, less than said, you think you need. Yeah. He sent home a bunch of shit. People that hike the the hike those long trails like the PCT, they send home shit too. They just they yep. think they need they're like, oh well, yep. what if I need this? What if I need that? And you really kind of or I have that extra time on that day and I'll want to. Yeah. Well, you boil yourself down to really the. I want to lie down for three hours and stare at the sky and do nothing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Forrest, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I think you had uh, one heck of an adventure. Uh, I, I'm envious. I hope some of our, our listeners uh, are also really enjoyed listening to you share your story. Again, thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, and one more thing, Greg, I, yeah. I, I, I took a bunch of pictures with the SLR camera on the trip. Like, oh, I'm, I'm posted up to Colorado now, but they're on Instagram. If anyone likes to see my pictures and my comments, it's F Hobbs 404 at F Hobbs 404. That's F H O B B S 404. And uh, just a lot of like, you know, nature pictures and Great. landscape pictures of people like that sort of thing. And, uh, I, I, I'm very appreciative to you. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Hey, we'll include a link to your Instagram channel on the uh, on the show notes and uh, when we cool. uh, promote this. So that way people can just click through directly to it and check out. Because yeah, man, you know, photos worth a thousand words. They can really see what you, some of what you saw along the trail. So again, yes, Forrest, I really appreciate it. Have the great rest of your day. I'm very grateful. Thank you, Greg. Awesome. And for the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenson. Keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com 
where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Rider Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.